This is an ABC podcast. Hi, and welcome back to a special Christmas Day broadcast on RN and Radio Australia. I'm Siobhan Marin, and I'll be with you for the next hour, along with my co-host. Good morning, I'm Rowan Salmond, and it's great to have your company on this special day. This morning, you'll hear from a South Sudanese refugee whose faith has been a driving factor in his life and has led him to a role with the Diocese of Parramatta. And Rowan, you recently spoke with philosopher Tim Dean about the work he's been doing on holidays. Yeah, that's right. He explores some pretty interesting ideas about how holidays can sometimes be a unifying force, but they can also be divisive. We'll talk about if it's really possible to create a holiday that everyone can take part in. I hope it is. (laughs) Looking forward to it. First off, though, if you have teens in your home, they'll probably be spending at least a little bit of today on their mobile phones, perhaps using the social media app TikTok. The app is known for dance challenges and comedy videos, but it turns out younger Australians are also using it to reflect on their values and even their faith. A study from McCrindle Research shows that Gen Z are 6.5 times as likely as baby boomers to be prompted by social media to consider spirituality and religion. I spoke with Managing Director Sophie Renton about their findings. So many people, they talk about Gen Z and say that they're, they're not engaged with faith, they're, they're lazy, all, all, the, all the words we've heard thrown out about them. But what's interesting with this generation is that while they might not be associating with institutionalised religion as maybe generations in the past, and particularly with Christianity, they are more likely than their older counterparts to consider themselves as spiritual but not religious. So there's this desire and exploration of faith and spirituality. It just looks a bit different to maybe generations than before. Yeah, can you talk to what this spiritual but not religious mentality kind of looks like and and how it's playing out online? Yeah, these young people, they are looking, I guess, for purpose and meaning in life, just like everybody else is. And some of that is from beliefs that they've developed. Some of that is from astrology. Uh, Some of that is looking and using social media to learn about spirituality. Uh, What our study found was that Australians are most likely to be prompted to think about spirituality and religion by a death in the family or conversations with others or or health issues were the top uh, responses for Australians overall. But we found Gen Z are 6.5 times as likely as baby boomers to be prompted by social media to consider spirituality and religion. And that makes sense when you think about this generation. You just take one look and they're often glued to their phones. But it's not just maybe consumption uh, that they're doing. They're actually exploring some of the deeper things in life and social media as well. And what does this mean, I suppose, for churches and how they might seek to, you know, resonate with younger audiences in the future? Yeah, this is often a challenge for older, more established churches. And and how do they engage the next generation coming through? It's the same in business, the same in all of life, I guess. How How do we engage the next generation? And I think it's important to know that 
our young people, they've got some beautiful values and they really place a high value on authenticity, bringing their whole selves to life and and everything that they do. And in that, they actually are more open to all spaces being appropriate to talk about spirituality and religion because they don't want to hide behind doors. They want to they have it kind of all out. And so in our study, we wanted to understand, okay, social media has a big impact on this generation. They want to be fully authentic. So where are they going to learn about spirituality and which platforms? And we found that almost half turned to TikTok at least weekly to learn and, and grow in their spiritual life. So I guess that's some advice to, to churches or institutionalized religious organizations is actually how can you maybe create content that can spark questions for this generation who are on a, a journey of exploration, but meeting them in the, the methods and the mediums where they already are. So TikTok and Instagram and, and YouTube, social media, it's a key part of their world. And how can you create content that can spark questions for them there? Mm. Why do you think that, you know, Instagram and TikTok are a place that younger generations are wanting to have these conversations around faith and spirituality, but it's not so much the older generations who are doing this? Yeah, well, first off, younger generations just embrace social media more into every area of their life. So it's a very natural platform for them and way of engaging. I think in some ways, social media also gives you that chance to explore without you being so personally visible uh, and could become a bit of a, a safety net for the younger generation to be able to explore without maybe feeling exposed. I think as you get older, you're more confident in who you are, what you believe, and, and are open to those conversations in a different way. So the older generations, the boomers, uh, they're just more likely to be on Facebook. Um, so that might be where those conversations are happening, but still to a lesser degree. And your research also looked at the tension points that Christianity faces. What did you find in that regard? Yes. Yeah, so this was exploring. We wanted to understand what, what are some of those negative influences or on the perceptions of Christians and Christianity in Australia. And across Australians, across every generation, the number one negative uh, influence on the perceptions is this history of church abuse. And the, the church in Australia still has a long way to go to rebuild the trust with Australian society in this space. And, and rightly so, because it's been atrocious, it's been deeply ingrained and it's been a real challenge. So church abuse is the number one. Hypocrisy is the second. And then judging others, the sense that Christians perceive themselves as superior and then maybe their actions and their beliefs aren't lining up. So that's the top across every generation. But one of the uh, response options that we had in there was around the church's stance and teaching on homosexuality. And that is much more likely to have a massive negative influence on Gen Zs at 45% than the older generations to take baby boomers at 28%. Are the key, I guess, negative influences for the younger generation are also the role of women and gender inequality and, and some perspectives that the church and its beliefs aren't aligned with the world today. And so there's a bit of a tension there and a challenge for faith leaders 
to explore how they can communicate biblical truths in a way that can build bridges and not put up walls. Uh, One last element is when we think about Generation Z and, and people can think that they're cold to religion and Christianity, our research we found that they're more likely to be extremely or very open to a spiritual conversation that actually holds different views to their own. And so this generation is quite exciting as we think about the future and and faith conversations because they believe in the right for people to hold their perspective and to create space, even if that might be different to their own. That was Sophie Renton from McCrindle Research. So Rowan, I've got to ask, are you on TikTok? I do have TikTok, uh, but I'm not a power user, you might say. Uh, I might use it maybe once a week. I actually find it uh, less addictive than websites like Twitter because I I know it's a hot take um, <laughs> because I, I don't want to disturb other people. So the fact that it has music and sound uh, means that I won't you know, use it on the train. Whereas I will quite happily scroll Twitter or Instagram or something like that um, when I'm out in public. Interesting. Very millennial of you. Uh, it is very millennial. I'm, I'm not really the target audience for TikTok, I don't think. <laughs> but when you are on it, are you getting much religion content coming through? Yeah. So I actually get a lot of ex-Mormon content and a lot of Well, actually, the other day, there was a young woman who used to be Amish, but who lives in Alaska, and she taught me how to wax turnips so that you can keep them over winter. Wow. Never thought I would hear that in a sentence. Yep. That's the glories of TikTok for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. I suppose, you know, the algorithm gives you what you want. And so if you are asking these larger questions and, you know, seeking solace or get more in touch with your spirituality and find your faith, then this social media app can actually, you know, give you some pretty good resources. Yeah, like a lot of things you really have to be thinking about what you're seeing because there is a lot of misinformation on there as well. Um, There's one account that comes up on my feed pretty often who he's a Bible scholar who fact-checks a lot of claims that are made about uh, the Bible on TikTok. And so he'll respond to various videos and like it's quite informative in uh, in an academic kind of way, Uh, probably not what most people are looking for on TikTok, but I suppose the algorithms worked out that I work for the Religion and Ethics Unit at the ABC, so <laughs> that's what it serves me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You want qualified information. That's right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, well, changing times for religions across Australia and the world, and I suppose this research speaks to the fact that churches and religious organisations need to take into account where young people are at, and it seems like they're on TikTok. <laughs> I think it's time for some more music now, and this is actually one of my personal favourite carols, Carol of the Bells. This one has been arranged by Patrick Hawes. Thank you. 
You're with Rowan Salmond and me, Siobhan Marin, for a special Christmas broadcast on RN and Radio Australia. It's great to be with you this morning. Absolutely. And I hope wherever you are, you're having a joyful morning, even if Christmas isn't a holiday that you usually celebrate. Recently, I spoke with Dr. Tim Dean, Senior Philosopher at the Ethics Centre, about days like today, which are widely celebrated, but not by everyone. He had some interesting ideas about how we observe holidays in a multicultural society. Tim Dean, I suppose I should wish you a Merry Christmas, or should I? <laughs> Tell me about the work that you've been doing. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, it is quite a natural thing to say this time of year is to say Merry Christmas. You see people on the streets, you walk into shops, there's Christmas decorations everywhere. And this has gotten me thinking about what are we doing? doing with this thing called Christmas? Or what are we doing with any kind of holidays? And not just the vacation type of getaway holidays, but those annual holidays that roll around once a year and and we make a big deal out of them. And so I've been thinking a lot about like, why do these even exist? and, And what do they mean today? Because they used to have profound significance, and maybe they still do have profound significance for the way that we consider ourselves, think of ourselves as social creatures. But there are all of these pressures that are changing what holidays mean today. And what are some of those pressures? Well, I think there are two main things. So we did an intro, you said, hey, Merry Christmas. Now, what if I'm not Christian? What mm. if I'm secular? Mm-hmm. What if I, I, I'm from a different religion? What if I just don't like religion at all? Like, how does that come across when we no longer live in a kind of homogeneous society where everybody has the same beliefs and the same religions? So that's one of these tensions where now when we talk about uh, holidays, and some of these could be religious holidays, but we've got secular holidays as well, things like the Queen or the King's birthday or Anzac Day. They have a lot of the same trappings as holidays. They've got these kinds of this kind of sacred quality about them. Um, but not everybody will see them the same way. So some people will interpret these holidays as being meaningless, being frivolous, sometimes offensive, or sometimes quite divisive, as we have seen recently in the case of Australia Day, so where something used to be a unifying force by encouraging us to recommit to shared values, to shared norms, to shared rituals and practices, the same clothes, the same songs, same foods, uh, whatever it was. Now, sometimes in this modern world, this diverse world, some of these religious and secular holidays can actually be divisive. Mm. So I've been thinking about how can we, how can we overcome that? Is it important for everyone to be on the same page about a holiday for it still to be significant? Look, that's a really good question. So I draw a lot of my influence from the uh, French sociologist Emile Durkheim, and he was really interested in all of these different practices and rituals that we have in society. And he's like, let's not just describe what they are. Let's just let's try to figure out what they're for. Mm. What do they do? What is their function? And so his argument was that holidays, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever, they were a way of bringing a community together. They're a way of reinforcing our shared identity. They're a way of reinforcing um, the values that we care so much about. So there is an element of holidays that actually serves a really important social function. And I wonder whether we have somehow lost some of that social function. So the other pressure that I think that holidays are under is actually just from capitalism, from the market, from 
commercialism and materialism where they've now, a lot of them have been invaded by, you know, the the bunting that goes up in supermarkets and shopping centres encouraging us to buy and want certain things and telling us, you know, what we should and be shouldn't consume and all that kind of stuff. It makes us want to go out and spend money. But that undermines what Durkheim would have said is like the sacred value of a holiday, the thing that elevates us above the mundane, or as he put it, the profane world, the world of everyday interaction, the world of everyday transactions, the world, the uh, the kind of economic rationalist world of I am an individual and I have my interests and my wants and desires and I'm going to work and transact with others to satisfy those wants and desires. He was like, no, there's some element of us that wants to belong to something bigger, that wants to belong to something sacred, that wants to give and share and increase incur a cost and have some self-sacrifice to signal how much these things mean to us. So there's an element of holidays that I think is worth recapturing in this diverse world that Mm. can be divisive and this very commercial world, some way for us to get back and to make holidays more open and sacred but also more inclusive, maybe even create new holidays that can bring more people together. Mm. I mean, in a society like Australia, which is so multicultural and, you know, so commercial as well, is what you're describing actually possible? Like, what would a holiday that was universally unifying maybe, what would that look like? Look, I love that question because I don't know. (laughs) And so a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment, and we ran an event uh, recently at the Ethics Centre where I asked people this, and I want people to think about this. I've been thinking a lot about it, and I don't know. I mean, I have some ideas of what a universal kind of holiday might look like. I know the ingredients Mm. of a good holiday. The ingredients are that there are rituals, and customs, things that we repeat and do on the same day every year. There is a meaning and a a value that we hold above, hold aloft on a particular day that we think about, that we reflect on, something that we might not think about in every other day of the year. There are icons and there are symbols that represent that thing, that value, whatever it might be. And that could be, you know, a monument on Anzac Day. It could be a parade that we run. It could be the, the king or the queen if it's if it's the, the, the monarchy birthday. Um, it, on religious holidays, we have lots of religious icons. So we externalise and project our meaning and invest these material things with meaning. So a holiday has all these things put together. Often there's a social element, a feast, food is a natural thing that we come together around. And feasting is not something, I mean, in the kind of profane, capitalist kind of mindset, feasting is something that we can choose to do any day. But there's a reason why on particular holidays we get together and we overeat. We're celebrating abundance, but we're also giving and sharing food with each other. I think if you mix and match a lot of these elements, you could create a brand new holiday, something that might celebrate unity and diversity, something that might both mourn the tragedies of the past as well as celebrate the possibilities of the future. I think it is possible and I would love to hear what people think about what a new holiday might look like. So uh, a lot of the things that you have described as potential uh, ingredients to this new holiday they have echoes in holidays that we already observe, which may have religious or civic backgrounds to them. How would a world that includes both the old holidays and this new kind of holiday that you're describing, how would they work together? 
Well, I think we can see from the last couple of hundred years as the world has become more diverse, we have seen new kind of patterns and things emerge where people of different backgrounds can celebrate. So one big one was that only, you know, a few hundred years ago, your nation state probably wasn't even really a nation state. It was really just a, a cultural, ethnic community, a belonging of shared identity and language and, and, and ancestry with a religion laced into it. These things were really tied together. And it's only really in the last few hundred years that the nation state is a separate entity. It's like a political bounded entity based upon secular values, a constitution or whatever it might be, that that has emerged and kind of interlaced itself with the ethnic and the religious. And over the last century, particularly over the last 50 or 60 years, we've seen a de-interlacing of the nation and ethnicity and religion so that you can kind of mix and match. And this is healthy because it means that you don't have to be a particular kind of person or have a particular kind of religion or belief in order to be a, a welcomed member of a particular nation. But it does mean that we've kind of fragmented and fractured. But there, you do see holidays. Like in the US, uh, things like St. Patrick's Day, you'll see people waving Irish flags and American flags. So you see people waving these two symbols of different identities and blending them together. They're signalling difference and unity. So it can be done. It can, it is possible to create a new holiday where we can celebrate difference, but also some kind of shared identity or some kind of shared respect. I don't know what it could look like. In fact, it could look like a million different things. It's a matter of finding something that is meaningful to enough people to then become a habit, a tradition, a ritual, and then it really becomes a holiday. Mm. I mean, just to come back to Christmas as a public holiday where um, I suppose because of the history of the Church of England within the British Empire and all that kind of thing, we've inherited this thing which is not universally held by everybody who lives in Australia. But there is a sense that in general, other than service workers, people stop for a while and that has value. What does that mean within Australian society to you? Well, it's really interesting um, because it is a, a historical kind of feature of Australian culture, uh, particularly post-colonial Australian culture, that it was imbued with these kinds of Christian uh, ethics and uh, norms and holidays, and we still carry that baggage with us, even though our society has changed. Australia has the fourth highest percentage of non-religious people of any country in the world, and yet... Uh, we still have these Christmas celebrations which are endorsed by the state. We have decorations that go up, um, you know, funded by the government. And what I find interesting about that, so, I mean, if I talk about my own story, I grew up in a, in a kind of a, a loose Christian family. We weren't very observant, but, I mean, it was in the background. Uh, but then as I became, you know, older and started to question my beliefs, I mean, I'm a philosopher, right, so I just never stopped questioning things. I lost my religion. I, I no longer considered myself to be religious, and yet I still celebrate 
Christmas. And there are a lot of features of Christmas that I value a, a lot, like the gift giving, the getting together with family, the, the obligation to actually get out there and reconnect with my community and my family. And so as a non-believer, as a non-Christian, now I can enjoy a Christian religious holiday just without the religious elements of it. And what I wonder about is whether there are more opportunities for other religious and other kind of national sacred holidays that we could open up and welcome those who were not traditionally individuals or cultures that would celebrate that holiday, but find a way to allow people to enjoy certain aspects of it that we think can be unifying without necessarily committing to the things that might be divisive. This is an open question. Mm. This is something that I think a lot about. I don't know whether it is possible, but I do think that having some shared traditions and shared values, if we can find a way for it to be inclusive and not divisive, is something that I think a lot of people really want. Yeah, what you're describing, uh, it, it, there are risks to it. For example, you, there's the risk of religious or cultural appropriation. If, if we were to observe, for example, like Diwali without engaging with the culture and the religious significance behind that day, it could be quite offensive. I mean, what do you think about that? Look, there are real risks. So when I think that it is possible to open up holidays that used to be confined to a particular community, first of all, I'm not talking about every holiday because there are some holidays that are very important and very private and very sacred within particular traditions or customs or cultures or religions. But there are others that are that serve this function that Durkheim talked about of bringing a community together. But in order to do that, you're absolutely right. There are risks of cultural appropriation. If somebody um, unwittingly just waded into the traditions and the customs and the surface veneer of a particular religious holiday without understanding what goes on beneath it, there's a risk that you just kind of create like this surface almost parody of it. So what I would think is that one necessary condition is that individuals of, of the particular history and tradition and culture uh, of that holiday need to be the ones that take charge. They need to be the ones who define the parameters of engagement, who are the ones who choose to open up certain practices, certain rituals, certain customs to those who do not necessarily share their faith or their culture. So it needs to be very important that we do not then colonialise these rituals and these holidays and just take them over. It needs to be inclusive. It needs to be empowering. And I do think this already happens. I do think members of different communities already welcome people in to celebrate various things, whether it's Cinco de Mayo or Diwali Mm. or Hanukkah. There are individuals who want to share those traditions, Chinese New Year, all sorts of other traditions there. As long as the people who are the, the the protectors and the carers for that culture and that tradition are the ones who have the power to decide how others do engage with it. And what about commercialization? Are we just opening more opportunities for the market to exploit these holy days if we think about these holidays in this more inclusive way? Well, yes, we could be. Yeah. <laughs> we might be opening ourselves up for shopping, shopping centres to be, you know, regaling us with all sorts of different musics and cultural you know, icons simply to sell things. And I would want to resist that a little bit. And I think we do have the power to resist that. There's a certain power that, that, that capitalism has. I want something. I can, I can, you know, work hard. I can earn money. I can exchange that for that thing. That is 
that's incredibly powerful. But it is not exhaustive of the human experience. Human nature craves something elevating, craves something transcendent. As Durkheim put it, craves something sacred. And one of the features of the sacred is it's not negotiable. It's not fungible. I can't just arbitrarily choose to sell a sacred site. I can't uh, put a price on the value of a certain icon that is sacred to me or to my culture. So I think there's a certain element where we have the power to take some of the meaning back and to resist the incursion of the market. Sometimes the market will be useful and be helpful. Uh, There are some rituals like gift giving where the market can be useful, but that said, I would think that when it comes to Christmas, so this is a ritual that I I feel very strongly about, I try to make a gift or somehow inject some creativity, some of my own agency into a gift Mm. for my friends and family around Christmas. And I find that it maybe isn't as useful to uh, my friends and family as a gift card, which gives them full power to control what they then, you know, buy. But it signals what I think is important. It signals that I care, that I think about them, that I understand what they like, what they want, what they care about, what they need, things that they might not even know that they need. And I've, I've injected my time and my energy and invested that for them and that takes work, but that is the point. When you just give a gift card, it gives you the chance to buy whatever you want. That's great. But when you get a gift where someone has really thought about you and invested time and energy into that gift, that is a non-market transaction. And I think that can be a lot more meaningful. We can do that whenever we choose. Mm. But I suppose with Christmas, there is always going to be this religious baggage attached to it, right? I mean, is it possible to uncouple the traditions from the holiday? Well, so let me put it this way. Can you celebrate Christmas and particularly the ritual of gift giving if you don't believe in Santa Claus? Right there, we can see that the belief is just one aspect of it. It's the practice that is actually the most significant thing. And like I said earlier, I mean, I'm no longer religious, so I no longer, uh, you know, practice the religious and the spiritual aspects of Christmas. But there are so many other aspects of it. I get together with my family. We share a feast together. We put out decorations so that our homes look welcoming and they look celebratory. We express values of love and compassion and joy and goodwill. We use that terminology, which has been a part of the Christmas lexicon for for a very long time. We have a feast. We, We cook certain foods that we don't cook at other times of the year, which makes them special. We cook them for each other. So there's a lot of aspects of a lot of these religious holidays that do not require the particularly spiritual element in order for them to carry just as much meaning. So sometimes it can change it. Sometimes you can be taking something away that might be essential. But I think a lot of the time it's the function, that social glue aspect, the the self-sacrifice, all of those aspects of it that really do the heavy lifting. And it's not necessarily the spiritual aspects that are doing all of the work. So Arguably, they can and already are decoupled. Mm. Mm. I mean, I sometimes wonder if there are two Christmases really that happen at the same time where there's the religious holiday and then also like a commercial, secular, public holiday, which are interrelated but not exactly the same thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people would experience that. But even with a holiday where there's a shared set of values, even within a homogeneous community where everyone has the same religion and ethnicity, there will be differences Mm, in the mm. way that people perceive and experience it. And particularly once the market gets involved, there will be a, a different experience around that as well. So it can be diverse, but there can be some common features of it, particularly, you know, we all get the day off. And that we should also recognise as being really important because if we have one random day off a year and we can't, it's not necessarily the same day as our friends and family, it's less powerful. But when we all have the day off at the same time, except for those workers who are helping us out, who I think deserve compensation for not having that day off, um, when we all have that day off together, that day off becomes more valuable, more important because we can share it. So public holidays are a kind of a a state-sanctioned day off work And we can fill that public holiday with what we choose to fill it with. So I'm not necessarily calling for a complete overhaul. That would probably be a bit bit of hubris from a philosopher. (laughs) I'm encouraging us to think about what are holidays for? What do we want them to be for? What values do we want them to represent? How can we use them to help bring people together, to be open, to be inclusive, to elevate us above the everyday world and find ways to take holidays that are divisive at the moment? There's been so much debate around Australia Day because there are two competing visions of sacredness there. One, a sacredness around, you know, the the, the post-colonial state and everything that Australia has achieved since then, and the other, the sacredness of the First Nations people, of the land that they have dwelt in for tens of thousands of years and looked after and cared for and still do. And so there are these two competing visions of sacredness making that particular day, particularly on the day that celebrates the arrival of the the British to Australia, that is divisive. And there is a lot of discussion around how do we recreate that holiday in a way that is inclusive. There are lots of ideas. I'm not going to share them here. I open that up for people to think about what is important about a holiday. And I've mentioned all these things, the sacredness, elevation, shared values. How can we put them front of mind and make sure that when we do change the holidays that we do have or we do, you know, experience or recapitulate the holidays that we have had in the past, how do we make sure that they are inclusive and welcoming and elevating rather than divisive? Well, Tim Dean, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, Thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. That's Dr. Tim Dean, Senior Philosopher at the Ethics Centre, opening up a few questions about how we celebrate holidays and why. If you're curious to hear more, there'll be a link on the Sunday Extra website. Fascinating interview, Rowan. And as Tim Dean pointed out, even people who celebrate the same holiday do it in different ways. I know in my own family, I have Polish and Chilean relatives, and the tradition for both is to stay up to midnight on Christmas Eve. Yeah, I lived in Scotland for a while and we did the same thing there. But now that I'm back in Australia, it's more about going to church on Christmas morning and then having lunch with family and friends. It's, you know, all pretty standard. Right. And for many communities, Christmas Day is the main event. It's something that James Adonasius told me about. He's a South Sudanese refugee who moved to Australia nearly 20 years ago. And now he's the peace, justice and ecology facilitator in the Diocese of Parramatta. Christmas back home for us is, uh, growing up for me, is a surprise. All the gifts that we know of that we do here in Australia, like clothes, bought some months earlier, 
will be on on the day of the Christmas. So that will be hidden somewhere there. So it becomes something special. The church back home will be packed with people on Christmas Day. You must get ready early for church. Otherwise, you will sit outside in the cold or in the heat. Christmas food, uh, which is very, very important, rice, meat, chicken, poso, which is the semolina. Not sure whether you, you know that, but there's, there's uh, cassava, sweet potatoes can all be prepared and shared with everyone, including neighbours. And no one misses out during Christmas in, in my dialect, is a special song that people would sing during, during Christmas. And it is a song that shows both Christmas as a communal uh, and also as a surprise. So it goes like this. Oh, oh, nyatalo dara, mangba di kotliya, me sui zayo, oh, oh. So basically, what that means is, so a pot, like a handmade, a clay-made pot, often is used to cook these beautiful meals uh, for Christmas, like your rice and meat and chicken. So basically, I dipped my hand in the pot and I found the meat has gone, the, the rice has gone. And I was surprised what happened with all this food. Oh, but I remembered, it's Christmas. This is why this food has all disappeared, has all vanished, because people have eaten it all. And this is, this is how Christmas is celebrated uh, in the community. It is a festive uh, season where everybody is welcome to share in a meal and eat so that no food is left. And will you be practicing some of these rituals today in Parramatta? Yes, there will be communal celebration, like uh, families coming together in their neighbourhood and cooking and sharing meals together in, in, in Western Sydney. This will be happening right across the, the African communities. Uh, and in fact, not only the South Sudanese communities, because the spirit of Christmas is about the spirit of uh, celebrating together and sharing meals together. And James, what was your early life like growing up in refugee camp? I spent 14 years in the refugee camp in northern Uganda. Uh, and this was simply because of the civil war that broke out in, in South Sudan in, in the late 80s. And my parents uh, moved to, to Uganda, to northern Uganda, where I grew up. So had very little understanding and knowledge about South Sudan, not until when I returned to South Sudan in 2015, when my dad was ill. Uh, and that was when I discovered, actually, my country of birth and knew, started to know a little bit about it. So, Wow, that must have been such a full circle moment. Definitely, yes, it, it was. Uh, and... It was a, a great moment for me because I never saw my ancestral land, uh, not until I returned and I was, you know, accompanied by my older sister to discover those places where my grandparents and mothers, fathers used to be. It was great. 
Can you paint the picture of what it was like growing up in a refugee camp in Uganda? Life in the refugee camp was was rough. People were survivors, basically, due to the lack of proper infrastructure for housing, health, uh, school and food, um, living in intense basically it was very intense so i lost friends and family members to cholera virus for example where we first settled in in the camps due to the lack of clean water so life was very intense very very difficult it was more like uh, you know you you have to survive to leave um, so it wasn't easy what role did faith play in your early life I grew up, um, I was born and raised Catholic. Uh, my dad was an ex-seminarian and I followed in his footsteps. I, my mum was heavily involved in the Catholic action group, so prayer groups and ministries. I participated in building a grass chapel, basically a roof where we moved from praying under the tree to now praying. In, the, in this grassroof chapel that I participated in, in building. I learned the catechism of the Catholic Church at a very young age uh, from the camp because that's what you needed to get baptised and receive your confirmation. That was very important. And you later moved to Australia. What was that experience like? It, it's such a great honour um, coming to Australia. Uh, discovering my Catholic community in Hobart, uh, Tasmania, where I first arrived in 2004. My bishop at the time, you know, allowed my sister and myself to study for free because of the gaps we had with the educational opportunities we missed out on. So it was really great. I was involved in my local parish uh, ministries and became a part of a community. I accompanied as a leader a group of young people to the World Youth Day in 2008 in Sydney. Two years later, I joined the seminary after many years of discernment from Africa and here, though later I, I resigned. I'm still close to the church and have a, a much respect uh, people within the church, within the church leadership that I, I honour. So as a 20-something-year-old man, you decided to, you know, go to seminary and be on a path to become a priest? What made you change your mind? I think um, the motivation for me was my dad, who also went at a very early age, and my cousins, uh, who some became actually priests, they were the role model for me, and I think it was just my change of direction uh, for vocations. I think that's what, what it was. So after making this decision, I suppose, what did you see as your vocation? So uh, speaking of vocation, I ended up uh, meeting my love and we started a relationship where we now have two kids. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And I think that this is a vocation to fatherhood, though in a different way. Um, in the way that probably God has chosen. Can you tell me about the work that you currently do with the Diocese of Parramatta? So I'm, my title is I'm Peace, Justice and Ecology Facilitator for the Diocese of Parramatta. 
I basically raise awareness on the social justice issues in our community, such as housing, refugees and people seeking asylum, anti-modern slavery, disability discrimination, domestic violence and disability inclusion. So basically working collaboratively with agencies to address these social issues that have become problem to our community. So along with advocating for the rights of people seeking asylum, obviously there's also much more that needed to be done in this space of policy change and talking to government to make sure that they are actually accountable to these issues as, as they make decisions uh, on behalf of refugees and people seeking asylum. So my role really is to advocate for the rights of uh, these vulnerable groups of people. It's always very important to to share the refugees' stories and I admire people who share these stories with Australians of their survivals uh, and also those, those difficult stories of people losing their lives and family members losing their loved ones. I think the more we share these stories with the rest of Australia, the better we are prepared as a society to do something about them. And I encourage people to tell their stories and, and work together and collaborate within their agencies and and send the strong message to our government to make sure that they do everything right to help uh, people in need, not only refugees and people seeking asylum, but the broader Australian communities who are in dire need of help and support. Do you have many family members still living in South Sudan? Yes. Um, so majority of my family members are in South Sudan. Uh, some are still in the camps because of the insecurity within South Sudan. Some have made their mind to return to the camps and live in the camps. They feel much better, much more secured under the care of the United Nations and then under the care of their own government. So, yes, I have, I have family members in both South Sudan and Uganda. Do you ever feel like you're split between these two worlds? It's split between these two worlds and especially split now between three worlds, which Australia is a part of now. You have Uganda and South Sudan. It's not easy, and this is something that I try to share with a lot of Australians, that... It's a difficult decision. Yes, change is good. Uh, and when we speak about change, we want that change to happen. But it's not easy. For a lot of us who came to this country, yes, it's great, great opportunities. And there's no doubt we appreciate this. But there's also a lot of sacrifices we've made. Uh, leaving our country, leaving your connections back home, your friends, communities... These are great, a lot of sacrifices a lot of South Sudanese have made. People are paying the price, the consequences of, of this war. So, yeah, we do appreciate the new life and the freedom and the voices that we are able to, to share with Australians in the world. But we are really hoping that things will work out for South Sudan and peace will prevail because home is very important. And also we want to be able to invite our fellow Australians, uh, 
now families and and friends to come to see South Sudan one day. And I think that's that's always the best thing to be able to give back to people who have done something great to you. That was James Adenasias, who's the Peace, Justice and Ecology Facilitator in the Diocese of Parramatta. You're listening to a special broadcast for Christmas morning on RN and Radio Australia. Here's a traditional choral arrangement of Silent Night, arranged by Stefano Savetta and Duncan Pittock. That, of course, was Silent Night. If you've missed any of the stories this morning or just want to relive Christmas morning, head to the ABC Listen app. And while you're there, you'll find plenty of great holiday listening, including summer specials from the program that you produce, Rowan, Soul Search. Yeah, you can keep an ear out for upcoming episodes about reforesting African deserts, sacred architecture and decolonising theology with Dr Anne Patel-Gray. Thanks so much for being with us this Christmas morning. 
I'm Siobhan Marin. And I'm Rowan Salmond. Merry Christmas, Siobhan. And Merry Christmas to you, Rowan. It's time now for the news. Let's end on Joy to the World, arranged by Patrick Hawes. 